Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hello and welcome to the Thinking Practitioner. Today's episode is sponsored by the Heal Well community. The Heal Well community is an interdisciplinary online community founded by massage therapists for serious healthcare providers who know how to be real, curious, professional, kind, silly, and collaborative. In the community, you will have a chance to engage in honest conversations with practitioners from a variety of disciplines to talk about the issues that keep us from offering the best care. The Heal Well community members connect with colleagues from a variety of healthcare disciplines for discussion and education about monthly themes like the BIPOC provider experience, weight bias in healthcare, and LGBTQIA issues in healthcare and more. Community members also get a 10% discount on all of Healwell's continuing education courses, so do check it out today at community.healwell.org. Hi, this is Whitney Lowe, and Till is off this week. He'll be joining me in, in the next episode once again. I'm very pleased to be joined by my good friend and colleague, Doug Nelson, today. Doug, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm really happy to have this conversation with you, Whitney. It's great. Nice to be yes, here. Always love to have our conversations, and we'll get to have this one in public here to share a few things with everybody. So, Doug, uh, if you will, lots of folks uh, know of you in our profession, but for those people getting introduced to you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work, what kind of things you're doing these days? Sure. Yeah. So I live in Champaign, Illinois, which is kind of in the center of the state, about three hours from Chicago, three hours from St. Louis, right? And uh, have had a clinic here in Champaign since 1982. I've been in practice since 1977. Whoa, hard to believe. Uh, hard to believe the clinic's going to yes. be 40 next year. Wow. Yeah. So um, we have 20, I think 21 therapists in the clinic. So the clinic is one thing, big part of my life, and I'm still seeing a ton of people every week. And so that's one piece. Continuing education is another piece. I have a continuing education institute called NMT Midwest that teaches precision neuromuscular therapy around the country. And I've been doing that since the mid nineties. And I think, yeah, 97, 98. And then, um, the other hat that uh, I'm also on the Massage Therapy Foundation board as a trustee, I was president of the foundation up until last this last March. So those are kind of the three hats that I've been wearing. So, Yeah, all right. I want to ask you about this because this is, um, you know, you have had an amazing career trajectory in this field. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, this is, quite remarkable, the length of time that you've been doing this. And what is it that keeps you going after all these years? You know, we hear so many stories of people having burnout and, you know, not being able to keep going everything. You know, this is a, a long stretch of time that you've been doing a lot of work, having your fingers in lots of different pies there. What is it that kind of drives you and keeps you going so long? Because I think I'm just getting a clue. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what it is. Like, finally, yeah. I, I might I might actually be getting somewhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, it reminds me of Pablo Casal. Somebody asked him, why do you still practice at 93? He says, because I think I'm making progress, right? <laughs> so, you know, uh, I think for me, you know, when I hear you ask that question, Whitney, I think about some research that I saw in the psych field. And it was a 20-year longitudinal study asking those people that same question, what keeps you going? Mm. And I think their answer is, it parallels mine that I would give you as well, which is number one, the fact that the sense that you're making a difference in other people's lives, at the heart of it all, it's about service, really, mm -hmm. and knowing that in some way you've made a difference. And that is front and center. But the other thing that scored really hard for them, and as well as myself, is also what I was kind of joking about, but not really, is that I feel like I am learning and growing every day. And that's a good thing. And the thing I love about this work, this chosen field of massage therapy, is that I I get to use my hands. I'm, you know, I grew up on a farm. I'm, uh, I, I would not want to sit in front of a computer all day long. I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I love to work with my hands, but yeah. I, I, I like to think, right? So I, I like to problem solve. So I get to use my head. And when you're working with people who struggle, people who are in pain, you get to use your heart. So I get mm -hmm. to use all three right. of those things. Yeah. And for just me personally, it the, the work suits me well because I get to use all three of those things. And I feel like I'm growing every day. 
Yeah, I have remarked to people numerous times about how, you know, it seems like we should have to pay to get to do these things that we do with people sometimes, because it is such a remarkable experience. And the fact that we can uh, do this as, as a career thing is is tremendously rewarding. Tell me a little bit about the, um, this is just amazing, you know, a clinic with that many therapists. What have been some of your biggest lessons or challenges in in running a, a you know, large-scale clinic operation like that? Well, first, I think it's going from therapist to, you know, clinic uh, leader. Those are different hats. Those are different things. And the the skills of one are not the skills of the other. And I think it's about um, vulnerability. Certainly, I learned a lot about that this year as, uh, you know, leading, you know, a group of people who depend on this for their livelihood through this whole pandemic experience. Yeah. Um, as a leader, you think, well, this is like that. You know, I've had this for a long time. Well, this was like nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. so, you know, the but it's about in some ways also vulnerability and and uh, and embracing that and and uncertainty and and plugging ahead. And can, if you don't mind, can I circle back to something that you mentioned? Just of course. For a second? Yeah. Yeah. So I remember once driving up to the foundation and just. For reference, my day is I see one person after the other all day long. I don't have time to talk on the phone. I don't, you know, I, I nothing. Uh, you know, it's one person after the other, and a little quick break for lunch, and it, so it's been my life for decades. So when I'm in the car, you know, thank God for Bluetooth. I, I do actually, you know, often will take phone calls. And I was on the way to the foundation, and this woman gave me her 40-minute saga, and it was a terrible saga with her struggle with healthcare. When I got to the foundation, one of my staff said, you know, it's amazing that somebody who's never met you would be that vulnerable, show the soft underbelly of their existence. And Whitney, you know, my response to her is yes. However, she's not the only person who's vulnerable. So am I. Mm -hmm. And because the moment that she um, comes to the office, she is going to realize that I don't have the answer. Yeah, And in that moment, Whitney, you know, it won't take her long to figure that out, right? Uh, you know, in that few minutes of ch- that problem solving, suddenly we're both vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and there's that joining, that connecting, and then we're going to leap off the precipice together. I, and again, what a privilege that is, because she's never met me. And, and yet she's willing to take that leap with someone that she doesn't know. And, and I have to earn that trust. But it's not like, oh, I have the answer. And now that you're here, we're going to, you know, yeah. we, we f- will figure it out together. And it was a long journey. And, and we figured it out. But it was far from linear, let me tell you that. Yeah. I do always think this is one of the things that is so powerful and significant about the way many of us approach working with individuals as individuals and not as, for example, um, body parts. You know, uh, I used to work many years ago in a, in a physical therapy clinic and would be quite sort of astonished at the number of times I would hear comments about the shoulder in room three, you know, or the yeah. knee in room four. Uh, and the individuals were being treated as if they were a body part. And that's not, uh, we certainly know now where the the ideal therapeutic outcomes are going to live. And uh, I think so many people are just starving for that kind of uh, connection and attention with a healthcare provider to just have somebody listen to them and, you know, engage with them and um, merge with their experience to some degree of just saying, yeah, let's, let's go down this uh, path together and see where it takes us kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I think it's, it's about that, that connection. It's, uh, you know, I'm going to go back to the cellist thing again, but for whatever Pablo Casals, I'm a human being first, I'm a musician second, and a cellist third. Mm-hmm. So for me, yes, massage therapy is what I do, but I'm a human being first, and there's human being sitting in front of me who's struggling. It's about that, first and foremost, everything after that, you know, comes second. Mm-hmm. And I think people are, it's about that connection. It's about the ability also to say, I do not know. But there are different kinds of, I do not know. There's a, I don't know, mm-hmm. closed door. There's an, I don't know, which is an open door to, I, I will figure this, I will investigate this and together we'll see what we can we can do. 
so many times in healthcare, and this was this person's thing, is you see this provider and they say, I don't know, but you don't have this, which is my domain, right? Mm -hmm. So you're off to figure it out to somebody else. And so you find out 30 things that you don't have, but nobody walks with you down the process to, you know, what's really going on. And, and that's a very lonely process for people. And I think just being there in relationship with people is the strongest thing. But I have to say, nobody taught me that. Mm -hmm. That was not part of my training. It, uh, you know, it, it came later in years of screwing up. So, so, yeah. you know, so where did it come from? What was, what was the teaching process that got you to that place? I mean, what can you, can you point to something that was sort of like a, a key thing or was it just a gradual development over time of, of understanding and recognizing those things? Yeah. You know, in some ways I, I think back to, um, late nineties and, uh, I won't go into the experience, but I, I had this epiphany moment of discovering, I don't really know what I'm doing. You know, like <laughs> I, I, I am, uh, I, I am confident, but it's bravado. Uh, I am yeah. confident without competence. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's funny how I went, you know, from, from, uh, you know, whatever to the, you know, to the summit of Mount Stupid and, and, uh, and took up, you know, residence and, it's just, I don't know, I'm embarrassed when I think about it, you know. And I think at some point, Whitney, when I realized I didn't know it and, and I was filled with doubt, that actually is a really good thing because mm -hmm. doubt creates curiosity, which creates possibilities. When you think you know, there are no options available, right? Uh, and, uh, and that's just a really, uh, that's not a good thing. So uh, that moment for me of kind of the angst, uh, the struggle, turned out to be one of the best blessings. It didn't feel like it at the time, but a really good blessing for me. Yeah. So I want to dive into this just a little bit deeper here because, you know, you and I have had some of these discussions before, and as educators, this is something that I think we're both um, aware and cognizant of because we see it a number of times for individuals, for example, who may be teaching continuing education courses, or maybe they're just starting out on, on a teaching career, we don't really have a, a real strong teaching track in our field like many other fields don't. So there's a temptation, I think, a lot of times when people get into some of these places, especially in teaching continuing education, where you don't know who the students are going to be. You've got people in the room who just got out of school and people who've been working for 25 years, and they come up with a question and you don't know the answer to it. And you think, well, they're paying a lot of money to be here. I better have an answer. So I'll make something up, you know, or just say something that's inaccurate. There is such a temptation to feel like you have to know everything. Um, you know, and this has been one of the things that I've, I've watched happen a lot over the years is like, how do we, how do we uh, encourage educators to be okay to be in that place of saying, God, you know, I don't know. I've never heard of that before. I've never seen that before and still be feeling okay about themselves because, you know, especially nowadays with Google in the classroom in your hand, if you start spouting off incorrect information or just off the cuff because you think of something's, uh, you know, somebody's not going to catch you at saying that's something inaccurate, it's likely to come back and bite you easily. Right. But, but I would say the parallel, Whitney, is back to the clinic. Mm -hmm. I think in that, in the educational system, yeah, it, but the same thing happens in the clinic. Uh, and that's what I'm saying. I, I've, it was an epiphany for me to realize I didn't have to know. What I yeah. needed are the resources to find out. And those are different things. And, and so being comfortable with that vulnerability and not knowing, for me, translated back to the educational environment where somebody asks a question and, you know, and many times they look to you for an answer. But the thing is, for instance, you know, will this work help such and such? Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen? Well, I've seen three people with that. Three people is nothing, right? So, you know, I, I tell people, you know, my opinion doesn't matter about this. If I could base that opinion and experience, and I'd seen 30 people who have that particular condition, and mm -hmm. of that 30, here are the results that I obtained. Now, that's something different. Even if there isn't research literature to back it up, there's a deep thing. But anything other than that is kind of conjecture on my part, and they deserve better than that. Yeah. And if they're asking that question, probably they have some knowledge about that or some experience with that. So that's an invitation to you know what, explore that. Can you 
why don't you investigate that? And if you need some resources, I can maybe point you in that. But I'd love to hear what you discover because I'm betting you know more about that than I do. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what people need um, permission is, is is doubt and, and and to explore different things and and be validated in that way. And I think that's really important. Yeah. So do you think there's a value... I mean, this is one of the things that I, I talk to people a lot about, you know, why I think it's important to learn a lot and to expand your your knowledge base and to really have a good understanding of a wide variety of facets of physiology, you know, biomechanics, uh, psychology, all the things that go into making us be humans. And when we come to that clinic encounter with somebody to say, you know, I don't know about this, but here's some physiological or, you know, here's some reasons why there's a good possibility this might do something here, and we'll sort of explore this together. Um, do you think, I, I certainly believe, and I was, I'm curious to hear your, your perspective on this, that giving that individual some more grounded understanding of why this might work when you work together might have therapeutic benefit because of the sort of increased confidence that they have in you and the desire that you're going to explore these things with them. But you've got, you know, some some rationale behind you for why you're making the decisions that you are. That's right. So, you know, it's funny, Whitney. I mean, uh, for me, everything is about the clinic. It's so mm-hmm. rooted in my experience. And I would say that's the value of the clinic. Um, the surest path to knowledge or the surest path to confidence is lack of knowledge. The clinic will absolutely humble you because people mm-hmm. come in and, you know, theories are easy. Results are actually really hard. Yeah. So you have to create outcomes and results for people and, and they don't, you know, you have to deliver the goods. And I love being held to that. I think that's really important. So when that person says, for instance, and this happens all the time, so what do you think is happening? You know, why, why is this happening to me, right? People understandably want that. For me, the answer is often, I don't know. However, if it's this, then this will be true and that will be true and this will be true and this won't be true and that won't be true. However, it also could be this, in which case this will be, you know, and I lay out that path for them so that they realize there are multiple pathways that this could go. I, I'm not lost. I have the skill sets to figure out which one of these, and together we'll go down each of those roads to figure it out. That builds, I think, confidence in people that that they know that you have the wherewithal to to follow each of those pathways, both to confirm, but more importantly, to disconfirm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things, Whitney. You know. Uh, with the foundation and people know that I've been involved in research stuff, I think what people don't understand, the goal of research is not to verify, it's to falsify. Mm-hmm. And and so for me in the clinic, I spend a lot of time doing that um, where let, let's say I'm treating something and I think, oh yeah, that's it. And the client's like, oh yeah, that is it. You know, when you do that, I feel such and such. That's exactly what I feel. And then I'll I'll do something totally different that shouldn't be connected to that and almost in a misleading way, like, yeah, hey, what about this? Like, no. Well, what about this? No. How about this? No. You know, you were on it before, but you seem lost now. It's like, well, I'm not that lost, actually. I was trying to just see if it was a something. But no, everything points back to the original thing. Okay, I think we we actually might be right. And and So is that what you mean when you talk about research being there to falsify things? You're doing this to also disprove the null hypothesis essentially. Yeah. What I'm trying to do is, you know, it's, it's easy to prove yourself right because Mm -hmm. you'll figure out anything to prove yourself right. It's, it's harder (laughs) to prove yourself wrong. That's the goal of research. And for me, you know, not growing up in that world and not be an academician, it's like, you know, that's a pretty smart track. I can do that in the clinic. I can try to prove myself wrong instead of trying to prove nine ways from whatever that I'm right about something. And yeah. that, and so one of the questions that I always ask myself is, there are two actually, every time I see somebody, number one, what makes me think this is soft tissue? Because my expertise is my blind spot, right? You know, and I've had a few, uh, you know, a couple of them in the table lessons things of, whoa, whoa, like they were, yeah, brutal. Mm-hmm. Or, and the second question is, and what else would explain this? Like if, people present with certain symptoms and you think, oh yeah, 
well, that's the, that's the low hanging fruit. What else would explain this? And being able to think on those other levels keeps my brain open to other possibilities that I might ignore if I thought I was actually right or something. Yeah. And, and in the clinic, that's been incredibly valuable. So, you know, you and I have had, again, some of these discussions before, and, you know, my, my real passion is, is as an educator and, and ask these questions a lot. Um, and, I'm curious, you know, since we don't, and you just mentioned this too, as a profession, we don't really, we we don't kind of grow up uh, in in our learning process as an academic uh, profession because we're our schooling is not really based in that that kind of model. We're much more of this kind of mentor and guru model of our education. You know, the, the information that's passed down from generation to generation amongst practitioners. So, how do we? And this is something I'm curious from your perspective of having worked so much with the foundation with research. Do you have any ideas or suggestions of what what do we do to try to get the practitioners to have more of that um, analytical doubt about what they're doing and look at these things from that kind of perspective of of disproving the things that shouldn't really be there and and look at it from that perspective instead of trying to like oh here's my technique and let's find the different ways that my technique works kind of yeah. thing. Well, you know what? Yeah, again, I, I would broad brush this in a way of of thinking about. You know, I can look at back in my own history. In the early in the early years, it was I have a fabulous answer, and I hope it matches your question, right? Because <laughs> whatever the question is, here's what I'm going to do. Yeah, and and then you know, I just realized, what am I doing? You know, so so I think uh, if we just look at this in a way of how can we be flexible? Again, it goes back to the clinic for me. Guess what? That didn't work. Your lovely go-to strategy failed. And this isn't something that you can argue with somebody. Like they either have results or they don't. And they look at you like, okay, then what else we got? You know, and then you switch strategies and you keep switching strategies until you figure it out. Well, guess what? That's what researchers do. You know, right. Einstein said we wouldn't call it research if we knew what we were doing, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. the, the goal is it's really formalized curiosity. And once for me in the clinic, once I felt like I had the license to not know and just to be curious and just to explore, I felt like clients really embraced that. Like, oh my gosh, here's somebody who's actually curious, willing to fail, willing to go the distance with me. And, and I am relentless. It's the Norwegian way, right? We don't solve problems. We just bore them to death until they just <laughs> leave. You know, we are so good at this. So, yeah. you know, it's just that, how, you know, um, what did uh, uh, Leonardo called it? Astanaro rigore, you know, that, that just relentless, uh, obstinate pursuit of whatever. And some of the people that I've been around, I've been around some amazing practitioners and, and athletes and artists in my career. What a privilege. But that's what I saw in them. That just unrelenting, I will figure this out. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think, you know, that that's really important in our field as well. You yeah. know, it, it, it's, it's about developing those skill sets too. Like, like, I think I told you once years ago, I did this thing of, I was asking every group I taught, what was it, like 31 seminars one year. I'll never do that again. But every seminar I asked the group, name the skill sets you need to play basketball really well. And I timed them. And uh, I can't remember now. I think it was like 7.8 or almost eight skill sets that people could name inside 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. And you know where this is going. Next question. What are the skill sets you need to do this work really well? The average over the year was less than three. Hmm. You know, it's like, are you kidding me? Like, we yeah. know more about basketball than we do about this work. Like, you can't come up with skills that you need in this and how do you develop a skill if you can't identify it mm -hmm. right so what are the skills necessary and then you know what is one thing how is something else how do you develop those things we can talk about palpation that's nice how do you develop those things and how do you know that you are correct not telling yourself something we talk about professionalism that's great as represented by what how do you do that Everything you say, you have to have a way to develop those skill sets. That's what any artist, that's what any athlete, that's what any, we develop those basic skill sets. I'm not sure we do that well in our profession. And I was certainly humbled when I started to explore that. 
Yeah. So when I hear you talk about, you know, how important these various different things are in your clinical practice, and I, I really resonate with the the things that you're talking about that, that are the most powerful facets of making good therapeutic change with people. You know, what I don't hear is uh, the emphasis on things have to be this particular technique or that particular technique. And yet so much of our education, especially in the continuing education world, is oriented around, you know, learning this modality and these particular techniques and do these specific things this number of times with somebody, uh, you know, very much closer to the sort of recipe or prescription kind of model. But, you know, what I hear you talking about in your discussions here are the so much more of these broad-based skills uh, approaches and and uh, kind of uh, you know mental perceptions about the ways in which you work with people and, and I'm assuming obviously for you that's very much informed by many years of developing a lot of skills techniques and things like that but that doesn't seem to dominate what you think is most uh, critical in the treatment room so how do you think we balance that and I'm speaking to you kind of as a fellow educator because I grapple with this you know how do we get people interested in looking at some of the broader brush skills of what's really necessary to be a great clinician uh, and not get so overly focused on, you know, I've got to learn X number of techniques or this particular modality or that particular modality. Yeah. I think just remembering in one way, Whitney, that techniques are answers mm -hmm. and answers only correct if it's in response to the right question. Yeah. Are we, you know, when you sit down with somebody, what is actually the question? You know, like what is their thing? I, I just had this uh, a few, like last week or so, I saw this woman, I only saw her, it didn't in one way seem appropriate um, with my schedule because I solved really difficult things, but she just kept saying how she never found someone to just like that worked for her, but she couldn't describe to me what that meant. Like she couldn't find what she was looking for, but she couldn't describe what she was looking for. I ended up seeing her just because I was so curious about like, well, what what does that actually mean, right? So yeah. so I I stayed and saw her, and you know what it was, Whitney? It was really interesting. Her husband died two years ago, and she was absolutely devastated with that. And honestly, she loved the session. I think it had nothing to do with, in one way, what I did, because it was pretty just straight ahead stuff that I can't imagine anybody else wouldn't do. But it was just that sitting with her and saying, I can't imagine how devastating. I know how deeply I love my wife. I cannot imagine the hole that would exist with that. And and I could see in her face the like somebody gets this. You know, mm -hmm. that's what she was looking for. She wasn't the shoulder in room three, right? Yeah. She was this person who needed another human being to say, gosh, you know, that must be very difficult for you. But mm -hmm. but again, those are skill sets that we we need to, to somehow we need to communicate that to, to in the educational system as well. And I'm, I don't know that we do that well. Yeah. So I want to kind of circle back. I want to take that piece and then sort of circle back on something too and ask your, your take on this. One of my real both pet peeves and passions as an educator is looking at some of the structures that we have used throughout our educational history for, um, you know, measuring education and looking at, you know, what makes good education. And um, one of the big things that, that I've really tried to find a way to, to carve into our field, and I know this is not going to happen in my lifetime probably, but I'd like to think that I can make some contributions to it, is looking at this process of, you know, how we're sort of validating uh, education. And, and you know, you were asking some things when we talked once about, you know, what kind of metrics we use to judge improvement with individuals. And, and in particular, you know, I've, I've been studying for years a lot about competency-based education and looking at this whole issue of how do we get off the clock? Meaning, you know, we tend to measure education in hours, you know, but in seat hours in entry-level training programs or in continuing education courses. It's a, you know, it's a 15-hour course or a seven-hour course or whatever without a regard for what do people really learn out of there. And like, that might not be good for one person who gets the lesson in two hours and somebody else really needs twice that time to kind of get it because they didn't have a really good background. So um, what are your kind of thoughts about, have any ideas or ways that we can look at, you know, how do we uh, 
evaluate the quality of these educational experiences for people or what kind of metrics we use to judge improvement for individuals? Mm-hmm. Boy, a couple of thoughts about that. One of which is, again, um, in it, it, it's about the kind of competency and outcomes that you're getting. Like, is this resonating with you? Do you understand this? And instead of, well, you know, the clock hour is kind of like the crazy thing. Like, if your butt was in the seat for 15 hours, you must now know this. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Any parent can tell yeah. you that is not true. Okay. Yeah. So, so I heard a great people- analogy for that one time talking about the, the T model of education, just like, okay, I steeped my person in this T for X amount of time. So therefore it should have all the qualities of what that amount of time frame is. And right. we just know that, uh, that, that doesn't work uh, at um, all. It doesn't um, translate that way. On further review, right? Yeah. So, right. so it is about, but you know, again, here we go. I'm so sorry to do this, but back to the clinic again, because mm-hmm. you spent an hour with that person, now things are better. Really? Yeah. You must be kidding. Yeah. And so it's about, uh, part of it is about constant feedback. It's about, is this accomplishing your goal? Um, it's about, you know, it's one thing I, I saw this back to the psych world, just by increasing feedback mechanisms, outcomes went up by 400%. And and here's a, a wild thing, you know, just getting feedback from people when they were measuring psychotherapists who said, oh, I do that all the time, right? When they were videotaped, they still weren't doing it. Uh-huh, so, yeah. so, you know, in, in education stuff in the clinic, it's that dynamic between here's what you need to know, is what I'm conveying, is that helping you understand this? And that takes reflection. And so I think in the educational system, we need more of that. You know, here's a here's a scenario. Like I've taught you this. Okay, that's great. Here's so what I do in my classes is sometimes I'll see people and I'll just say, I'll treat you for free if you will allow me to video, if you'll sign this release and allow me to play this in my educational classes. And then I'll play an educational, you know, I'll play this and when the person describes all their and then I feel and then I feel, but you know what's really weird, and I feel that now you have to apply those things to this scenario. You don't have to have the right answer. God knows when I see them, I don't have the right answer, right? But just tell me what your reason is, why you decided to go that direction. And more importantly, how will you know if you're wrong? And how will you know if you're right? And if and if they have a reasoned way to do this, I'm good with that. I mean, who's to say? Yeah. If, if I was going to drive to Chicago, there are lots of roads to get to Chicago. Who's to say what the right road is? As long as you end up in Chicago. But I might want to go the really scenic route. And Whitney's saying, could we just get there already, right? Like, let's take the internet. Okay, your goal is to get there in as quick as possible. My goal is to enjoy the process and see the scenery. It's not about the end product in one way. It's about what are the criteria? And are we, along the way, you tend to uplink to the satellite as often as possible. And if I may, I, I'm going to go back to, <laughs> this is horrifying. I shouldn't even admit this. Um, one of the table lesson stories, Whitney, uh, this woman called in. She was, this is, I think, in volume two. And uh, But this woman called in. She, her neck was really hurting and nobody could see her. So I, I'll, I'll stay. I'll see you. And there was a little bit in her like, oh, I get to see him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Lucky her. Uh, so... I want to do this thing in my own defense. You know, when somebody's facing you and they point to the side of their neck, but when they're on the table and you're looking, well, you know where this is going. <laughs> <That's right. Yeah. laughs> so it's like eight minutes into this. And, and, but I practice what I, pre- and I said, is this what you were thinking? You know, are, am I addressing your concern? And she said, yeah, you know, it, it's on the other side. And uh, yeah, there's not much to say in that moment. Right. But how far down the road would I have gone without actually, you know, checking in? And and for me, it's about checking in. Not only that, but, you know, is this the best way to do this? Like, what if I did it this way? Do you like this or do you like which feels more productive to you? Same thing in teaching. It is, okay, let's trade the is that does that working for you? Is helping you understand? Or what if we tried something? I try to keep it as plastic as possible, as fluid as possible, mm-hmm. so that um, you know the end goal is to understand the material. Presenting it is one thing; understanding it is something else, and that yeah. takes reflective thing. It's kind of like uh, you know you've heard the ten thousand hour rule, yeah. you know. But Anderson, 
actually wrote this whole book refuting that. He's the one, it's his research that was based on. And he was saying, that is not at all what I'm saying. It's about reflective practice. Yeah. Because if the 10,000 hour worked, I know a lot of people who've been playing golf for a lot of years. Yeah. Well, I'm not even going to finish it, but you know where this is going. Right. right. They are not better. All right. Yeah. So well, it's that whole thing too about like uh, you can talk about the the ten thousand hours of practice, but if you practice something wrong for ten thousand hours, you're certainly going to reinforce uh, not what you're after uh, through that time period too. So absolutely. So so yeah. what it is is did this did this accomplish the goal? Yeah. If not, how do I change it? How do I alter this? And for me, that's why the clinic is so foundational because when I I can't tell you, I mean it's it's a daily thing for me. People go. You know that, that last time that 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 didn't that didn't really help. Okay, mm-hmm. great. There's more where that came from. You know why don't we switch this? Let's let's try doing it this way. Let's try doing that. And um, that's why I so deeply love that because it'll just push you to the edge of uh, you know really the 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 Latin root. One of the Latin roots of humility is from the earth, and I feel like the clinic for me is the earth. It, it uh-huh. will humble yeah. you, but it will all those humbling things are also the the learning opportunities, because honestly, if somebody comes in and I do whatever I do and they're helped, good for them. But I have learned zero at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to um, call attention to this too. You've made a couple references to to table lessons, and I want to go back there for just a second for people who may not be aware of that. Uh, you've got these; it's two volumes now. Is that That's correct? Right. Yeah, That's right. uh, wonderful book that you you did or books now um, called Table Lessons, where you were describing and and illustrating some of the things that you've learned over the years from uh, being in the clinic with so many people. One of the things that I really gained a great deal from your approach in writing this book was this wasn't a group of of lessons to say, here, do this, follow this particular protocol. You often left these, the books were a collection of, of clinic scenarios, and you often left them with a question mark uh, at the end. And tell me a little bit about that in terms of your approach of how you uh, framed those and what what kind of things have, did you learn from the process of, of putting all that stuff together? Yeah, you know, I think in some ways, Whitney, it was being reflective about some of these experiences, the both the successful ones, but also there are many in there that are, yeah, difficult experiences, things I could have done much better. It, I think it was a way for me to personally reflect on all those things and hopefully, you know, deeply embrace those lessons myself and share those with other people. Oftentimes in teaching, you, you might say something that is a very important principle. And, and what people would come back to me often years later and say, I remember the story you told about a client where that principle was in play. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think without that narrative context, they would have re- remembered the principle, which is the yeah. whole goal. Yeah. Our brains are kind of wired for stories in that way. And and so, but but the goal there wasn't to like, like here's the story, here's the answer, and and you know who did it at the end. It was about it's really just the process by which we struggle with these things in the clinic and um, um, and sharing that process with people. Um, I, yeah, I and I think that, that yeah, that that ahead. contextual learning of of seeing the you know the content that you wanted to kind of get across to people in the clinical environment and seeing the, the very nature we often talk about the clinic being messy because it doesn't follow the often the guidelines and the rules that we're taught when we're in school or our training programs or whatever. And we're like, what the hell's going on here? Um, You know, so I think story is one of the best ways to help uh, illustrate how you get into that and how you get out of it uh, in some of those uh, kinds of instances. And that's one of the things that I thought was done so well in, in those books. Well, thank you. It's, uh, you know, there's just so many things and a lot of it comes up just in the things that people will say, um, you know what, I, I was just, when I knew we were going to do this, and for some reason, I picked up the book. I haven't looked at it for a, a while now, and and I just picked up this thing. It was uh, this, uh, the story was called Who is Assessing Whom? Hmm. And it, I was teaching this seminar. It was a, what I call level two, where f- uh, six therapists come in, and we see people together and problem solve and just the struggle. But, but there are people who have gone through the initial training program, so we're all at a pretty same level. But Afterwards, I saw someone who was one of the people we saw, and she said, boy, you can really tell who, you know, the different various abilities between therapists and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, it hit me. 
you know, we go through all this stuff. You and I have talked to, you know, we do all these assessments. We do. I think we should remember the client is assessing us just as much as we are assessing yes. them. Uh-huh. And so I was asking her, so how do you know this? And, and what kinds of things? And she noticed when people weren't paying attention. She noticed when two of the therapists were talking amongst themselves. She noticed when people were, you know, their touch, when people were kind of spacing out a little bit or whether they were tentative or whatever. She just went through the, it was like, wow, there's a marker. We think we're assessing them. They're assessing us. I wonder, you know, again, that's a humbling thought. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that speaks, again, so much to the power of that interaction. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I constantly emphasize with people is um, there's a tremendous amount of power that comes from why you're learning all this stuff, why you're spending all this time learning a lot of these details, is this has a whole lot to do with with uh, confidence and just the ability to, to think through problem-solving processes, and that has a lot of therapeutic power more so probably than just, you know, do this particular technique with this amount of pressure these number of times. I think so many of those other things can can end up being so much more uh, therapeutically powerful for, for people. You know, I think it, it's about confident humility. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, I, I have never driven, I could name a city, uh, whatever, uh, you know, downtown LA or whatever. You know, I've never driven there. But if you said you have to do this, I'll do it. I'll probably get lost, but I'll also figure it out, you know, mm-hmm. because I know I have the skill sets to get myself unlost, but I'm not stupid enough to think that I won't get lost. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah, because if you think that you're really in trouble, you, yeah. you're really lost when you don't think you're lost. Mm-hmm. So, so I think again, the, those things are really important in, in the sense that confidence is about that baseline knowledge, those skill sets that you develop that you can call on in that moment to address the situation at hand. Mm-hmm. That That's really important. And that's why we need to work on those basic skill sets to be able to do those things. Um, I'm so sorry to do it again. I just glanced at my cello and, and you know, like w- when my teacher, I'm this is my three years in or something like that, you know, I'm, yeah, anyway, I'm not very good, but I, you know, some of the basic stuff, God, it was boring and I didn't, wasn't all that great. I got okay with it. And then I started playing the Bach prelude. Guess what? Some of those things that I really hated are right back in my face again. It's like, yeah. oh, I can't get away with any. And it's like, again, do we do that in this profession? Right? Do we work on those basic skill sets so they are so fundamental, you know, that we can call on them in the moment when things don't go as planned? And, uh, and uh, you know, that I have to tell you, it's another table lesson thing, but one of my clients is an engineer. And uh, so he uh, lives next door to this orthopedist who's just brilliant and wonderful guy, but uh, kind of a little crusty, just, you know, it's, he's an orthopedist, right? It's perfect. Yeah. And and they're having some, you know, single malt scotch and they're watching training videos uh, that are, you know, orthopedists, it's very much, it's engineering, right? Yeah. So at mm-hmm. one point, my, my, my friend, the engineer said to him, you know, I think like 98% of what you do as an, I could probably do that. And doc, you know, took a sip of his scotch, looked at him and said, you know what? You're right. Here's the thing, it's the other two percent that matters. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And that's Point the part that you're going to get sued for too. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's all good until it's not good. Right. And that's yeah. that's what we work for. That's why we develop those skills. So mm-hmm. when when the when the bus starts to you know move off the road a little bit, you have the skill sets to bring it back on the road, and and that's just true in every aspect of life and in different others. Why wouldn't it apply to this? Yeah. Yeah. I saw a cartoon once that was about a similar kind of analogy. It was about a plumber going to a bank and giving the, you know, the bank manager a bill for $400. And, you know, the bill was itemized, you know, $5 for tapping on the pipe, you know, $395 for knowing where to tap, you know, and so it's it's that sort of thing of of the ground that we make around us that uh, that I think often gets there. Um, so uh, one more thing I want to kind of ask you and and uh, tap into before we close up here today. Um, you shared with me a uh, an anecdote of an episode um, one time when you were uh, talking with a group of physicians about your work and about the potential for massage therapy, and I thought there was a lot of really powerful lessons and things in there. And I want to have you share that with our, our listeners about the questions that that brought up for you and, and bring up for us as a profession too. 
Oh, um, let's, oh, I know what you're referring to. Yeah. yeah. So this was um, every year I've, I have been presenting as a guest lecturer to the U University of Illinois Medical School. Uh, and these are MD, PhD program people. I mean, they're total slackers. And uh, yeah. so uh, after I did, got into the work and did kind of the background stuff, we did some hands-on stuff and, you know, questions. And one of the questions from one of the fourth years was this, are you a representative sample of your profession? Mm -hmm. Oh boy. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and he said, I guess what I'm really asking is who knows where I'm going to end up when I practice, but if I'm going to refer people to the power and promise of all the stuff that you just presented, what confidence will I have that those people will be able to deliver the goods for my patients? Yeah. Yeah. That's a humbling thought, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because we need people to deliver the goods. We, we need people with that level of competency because gosh, you know, I just saw again, the, global burden uh, of disease, musculoskeletally, it's just getting, the need is greater every year. The, the, the need for what we do is amazing, but we have to meet that need. We have to have the skill sets. We as a profession need to do that. We have to rise to the occasion. And guess what, Whitney? It's not about us. It's because it's needed out there. And yeah. we, have the, we have the potential to do that. Mm -hmm. But potential is not reality and permanent potential uh, is not a good thing, right? Like yeah. how do we as a profession rise to that, to meet the need that's out there? Uh, yeah. And that's a question that some very broad question, but one that as somebody who's been in the profession for a long time, I want to see this profession continue for generations to come. It's been my whole life mm -hmm. and it's something that's uh, just, deep in me as a passion, but, you know, I, I want to see it generations to come because I believe in, in what this has to offer society at large. Yeah. And I, you know, that, that story had a big impact on me because it, it really, for me, kind of reinforced, you know, when you get to those days that are just difficult and you're in the grind and you feel like you're pulling a locomotive up a hill and it's just like, you know, are we ever going to change the educational system and all this kind of stuff? And that is, these kinds of things, uh, you know, helped me get back to that feeling of understanding this is why I keep doing these things, you know, and, and sort of, you know, for me, this go, really goes back to a lot of, you know, the very early times when I kind of uh, early in my career had kind of a, a uh, existential crisis about what I was doing in this field and what it was supposed to be about. And I realized after kind of sitting with this for some time is like, you know, I do have a bigger mission overall. My mission really is about helping to heal pain in the world. And it just happens to be that massage therapy and massage therapy education is the tool or the vehicle in that respect that, that um, I'm going to ride to help help get us there. But I, I really think this is a good lesson for, for everyone in terms of understanding the why behind why do you go to the effort of spending money on additional educational practices? Why do you put forth greater effort to try to, to be better? And that's because you're needed. You are so badly needed out there and you can bring absolute life changing uh, reflections and changes to people that will make a, a dramatic difference in their quality of life. And, and that has so many different impacts on, on other things in the world, too. So, you know, um, um, somebody asked me kind of what you started with, Whitney, is about being in the profession for so long. And, and what would you say to you know, someone starting? And, and I would say, remember why you started the journey. Because there will be days when it's going to get really, really difficult. And, yeah. and goals will fall by the wayside in those moments like, oh, forget it. This is a, But if you are deeply connected to the why, yeah. as you said, you got behind all this and what your mission was. And that same thing is for me. You know, I, I feel like there are so many people who fall through the cracks of healthcare, And we have the potential to serve that niche in, in a way that no other profession quite in the same way can do. That is a mission that when I'm just tired and exhausted and feel like Sisyphus, as, as you said, I, you know, it's like, get over it, buddy. You know, this isn't about you. There's a bigger mission at hand and that, yeah. that will keep you going. So, yeah.
Wonderful. Well, you know, Doug, it's, I, I look forward to any day that I get the opportunity to chat with you, and this has been delightful to sit here and, and go through some of these things, and I know we could we could go into this for hours uh, and dive uh, deeper with it here. But for our listeners, uh, tell us a little bit, where can people learn more about you and your work? I know you told us a little bit at the outset. Remind us again where we can uh, find you and find more about what you're doing there. Sure. The The website for precision neuromuscular stuff is PNMT. Dot org. So, and my email is Doug at pnmt.org. So, and again, Whitney, thank you just again for everything that you've done for the profession. You've done so much for the foundation, but just contributed in, in ways that um, the profession owes you a great debt for everything that you've done. And uh, it's deeply appreciated. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. So, uh, and uh, thank you for, for sitting in the chair uh, opposite me here today. Great to have this chat here with you. So I would like to uh, also say thanks to our uh, closing sponsor for this podcast. ABMP is proud to sponsor the Thinking Practitioner podcast. And ABMP membership gives massage therapists and body workers exceptional liability insurance, numerous discounts, and great resources to help you thrive, like their ABMP podcast available at abmp.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. And even if you're not a member, you can get free access to Massage and Body Work magazine where... Uh, Till and I are frequent contributors, and Doug is as well. And uh, special offers for Thinking Practitioner listeners at abmp.com forward slash thinking. So thanks again to all our sponsors and especially to you, the listeners, for hanging out with us on the show today. If you will, stop by our sites for show notes, transcripts, extras, links to like the things that Doug mentioned. I'll put some links in there too to his books so you can find those there. Uh, you can find them on uh, my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com and also on tills at advanced-trainings.com. And please do send us questions or things you'd like to hear us talk about. You can email us at info at or look for us on social media. You can find Till under his name, Till Luca, and also me under my name, Whitney Lowe, on social. If you will, also rate us on Apple Podcasts as it helps other people find the show, and you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you happen to be listening. And please do share the word and tell a friend. And of course, if you're unable to find us on any of those locations, you can always grab an orange Frisbee and put it on your parents' old 45 RPM turntable and you can listen to us there. So we'll see you again here shortly. Thanks again for listening and uh, do some good therapy. <laughs>